Hello, and welcome to this session on Bringing Techno-Globalism Back, a romantically realist framing of the US-China tech relationship with Jeffrey Ding. I'm Nigel Chu, and I'll be the MC for this session. We'll be starting with a 17-minute talk by Jeffrey, then we'll move on to a live Q&A session where they will respond to some of your questions. Now, I'd like to introduce our speaker for this session. Jeffrey Ding is a PhD candidate in international relations at the University of Oxford. For this academic year, he's a pre-doctoral fellow at Stanford's Uni Center for International Security and Cooperation, sponsored by Stanford's Institute for Human-Centered Artificial Intelligence. Jeffrey is also a DPhil researcher with the Center for the Governance of AI at the University of Oxford's Future of Humanity Institute. Here's Jeffrey. Hey, everyone. Uh, my name is Jeffrey Ding. I'm a PhD candidate in international relations at the University of Oxford, and I also work as a DPhil researcher at the Center for the Governance of AI um, at the Future of Humanity Institute. My talk today is going to be about bringing techno-globalism back. So first, I'll give an overview about why I think techno-nationalism dominates discussions of AI governance. And AI governance is a relatively new but expanding field um, in a lot of the EA communities uh, that are involved with EAGX. And then I'll talk about how the dominant techno-nationalism narrative can be challenged and that there's a way to talk about techno-globalism in a way that doesn't just return to this sort of end of geography, technology will cause us all to live in a global village style of thinking. Uh, but that it's worth it to reframe current discussions toward a more techno-globalist bent um, to check against some of these uh, dangerous narratives of an AI arms race, uh, technology cold war. Um, those types of techno-nationalist narratives can actually lead to self-fulfilling prophecies and dangerous forms of competition for technology that would undermine kind of our goals in AI governance. So first I'll start with just an overview of techno-nationalism. The term was first coined by Robert Reich all the way back in the late 1980s in a 1987 Atlantic article. And he was actually arguing that the US should avoid adopting this ideology uh, in its approach toward technological competition with Japan. So at that time, there were very fierce calls for the US to be much more protectionist against Japan and tensions were really high at one point. You know, there were pictures on national magazines showing Americans smashing Toshiba radios or smashing the windows of Toyota cars. And, and there was this, this very fervid um, aggression against uh, or, or view towards Japanese technology as a dangerous thing. And he was saying in this article that actually this type of narrow nationalist lens for technological competition flattened the discussion around how we should actually compete in technology. And he was arguing that um, a lot of Japanese companies, for instance, at the time had overseas uh, facilities in the US and were contributing to the US economy as well. And at that time, um, and maybe to some extent, technologicism was regarded as this form of retrograde thinking. Um, that, that is from a book by Samuels on um, on Japan's uh, technological development, rich nation, strong army, a really, really influential text. Um, but we're seeing, as you see with the figure of mentions of techno-nationalism in journal articles and news articles uh, through a LexisNexis search, we're seeing a revival 
in this term and in this ideology, especially as it comes to U.S.-China competition in technology. And you also see that intersecting with competition around AI. Um, at GovAI, we had Ian Hogarth, a prominent VC investor in the U.K., come and present and talked about his paper on AI nationalism. And, and there's more discussions around how AI is viewed as this national asset. So I talked a little bit about in the preview about how AI governance is this really important topic. Um, Alan Defoe, the director of the Center for Governance of AI, he writes in his research agenda that there is a very high leverage opportunity to address what may be the most important global issue of the 21st century, the field of AI governance. And uh, Carrick Flynn presented at a similar conference uh, two years back in 2018 and talked about and gave a really great overview about why it's important for us to work in the AI governance field. But, but I think that a lot of discussions about AI governance are framed in this very techno-nationalist lens, this idea that whichever nation state gains this decisive strategic advantage in AI will become the greatest power of them all. And we see this most clearly in uh, the meme of an AI arms race. Uh, this idea that there is some discrete end object um, or end weapon, a war-winning weapon of sorts that all countries are racing toward. And in a previous article co-authored with Helen Toner and Remco Zwetslut, I argued that we have to move beyond this AI arms race narrative. Um, but even, even critiques of the techno-nationalist narrative, um, when I was looking back at this text, I realized that even a lot of our critiques were still couched within this techno-nationalist narrative. So we argued that data is not the new oil and that you know, comparisons to China as the new Saudi Arabia of AI were overstated. We also argued that um, some commentators have an overly rosy depiction of China's tech policy. This idea that like China can just mandate from the top down that they'll be leader, the leader in AI and then it will just magically come about. The third point we argued was that fundamental research is still gonna be important and that the US has a crucial advantage in that respect. Um, and, and I was looking back at these first three points and it's just all still within this narrative that technology is contained within a nation state and as technology advances, it will just inspire more competition between nation states over some end goal. Our last point was that um, an extreme focus on narrow relative advantages in AI comes with many significant risks, uh, including the premature deployment of accident-prone safety-critical technologies like weapon systems and the inadvertent proliferation of dangerous capabilities. And the argument there is that actually technological competition um, can undermine national security and international security. Um, and that's finally getting at an argument that's moving us beyond uh, techno-nationalist narratives. And I think the, the, way, the way I want to break this down is that um, I want to clearly specify what I'm talking about when I, when I discuss techno-nationalism. Um, sometimes it's an unstable moving target. So the academic literature on this takes many variations. Some people refer to a, a variation of neo-techno-nationalism, open techno-nationalism, pragmatic techno-nationalism. Um, but, and it's been used to characterize a variety of scenarios. Uh, so in the first instance of U.S.-Japan competition, it was used to characterize a dominant power attempting to hold on to its technological edge. 
And right now, it's more often used to describe Asian states seeking to reduce their dependence on Western technologies. And I think there are three baseline assumptions at work here. The first is the techno-competition belief, and it's about how technological strength and security are, are the key drivers of interstate competition. The second is that technological autonomy is the way to technological strength and security. And the third is that the nation state is the primary unit of relevance for technology policy and that we can neatly package technological advances within the national container. And I think this is the most fundamental one that's underlying everything. So I do, I think that there, are, I want to propose ways on each of those levels for us to potentially reframe and, and take techno globalism seriously. Um, and in essence, you could take, you could take all these precepts of techno-nationalism and just reverse them, right? That there are concepts that are on opposite ends of the spectrum. And obviously there's a lot of gray area in between. I'm just arguing that we need to move a little bit more back towards the under, other end of the spectrum. So um, the argument would be technological strength and security are not key drivers of interstate competition and that they can actually drive uh, interstate collaboration or they can drive globalization. Um, technological autonomy is not the way to technological strength and security and the nation state is not the primary unit of relevance. So I'll just give ideas for each of the layers and then I'll dig in a little bit more closely into uh, one area of work that I'm pretty involved in, which is translation and the effects of AI on translation and, and thinking about that as a way to break through some of this uh, techno-nationalist narratives. So along the lines of the techno-competition belief, um, we can deconstruct sort of these AI arms race memes and this uh, Sputnik moment memes, um, this idea that a callback to a world in which uh, technology is all about competition between two blocks. And one way to do this is just to, uh, some, some writers like David Edgerton and a lot of economists have actually questioned some just basic assumptions of technology as a national asset. So one of the big debates is whether national R&D rates actually correlate with national economic growth rates. So we found that to be the case with global rates. Globally, as R&D rates go up, um, that correlates pretty well with positive global economic growth. Um, but actually, the literature is much, there's much more dispute about whether national R&D spending um, accrues to the national level or whether if a country advances the technological frontier with more R&D spending, um, that inevitably filters to all other countries um, and they don't actually gain a relative advantage from that. And there's various ways to, and there's various other assumptions to untackle. It may be the case that um, there is still some degree of competition, but it's just not at the uh, most basic uh, research level, at the innovation level. Um, and maybe the competition is more at the level of diffusion or sort of the end use applications. The second layer um, is techno-independence and this idea of technological autonomy. So one example that I like to bring up is Peter Thiel wrote this uh, New York Times op-ed about a year ago uh, saying that Google was being anti-American for having R&D labs in China. And a lot of American tech companies uh, have R&D labs in China. A lot of multinational companies have labs in China. Um, and one thing that I wrote was that I argued 
that Google's overseas labs may actually enhance America's overall tech competitiveness. So the idea that um, even if you believe that technology is a driver of interstate competition, in order to compete effectively in the global economy, uh, you have to embrace globalized methods. And one of those globalized methods is setting up overseas R&D labs to keep abreast of the most advanced and cutting edge technological innovations coming from around the world. Uh, America no longer has a monopoly on innovation um, and definitely not a monopoly on talent, um, especially with overly restrictive immigration policies, which means that not just American companies, but multinational companies uh, need to have R&D labs, need to have overseas labs to uh, recruit talent. For example, Microsoft Research Asia has a lab in Beijing and they give a lot of PhD fellowships to sort of the top AI uh, scientists, up and coming researchers from around Asia. And I've actually tracked some of the talent flows and talent trajectories. And a lot of them, about half of them, come to the US and eventually work for Snapchat or Microsoft's other divisions. Um, so it's a key talent recruitment pipeline. Um, third, under the techno nation um, vertical, I think. Oftentimes we think of states as these uniform containers and it's all about what China is doing in AI. Um, but I would push us to more think about, I've talked about multinational corporations as players um, and oftentimes in technical standards setting, you'll have Huawei and Qualcomm or Lenovo and Qualcomm, um, a Chinese company and a Western company have a strategic alliance and push a single standard to make technology more interoperable. And there's all these cross-cutting cleavages that go across national boundaries. Um, there's also the research community, which is very globalized. And I talked about how uh, talent flows are increasingly global and intermeshed. And I think one good example of how that's been really important in, in past uh, governance of technologies um, is having a transnational community of scientists and technicians and researchers who are able to speak this same global language of science of sorts. And that creates an open channel for communication. Um, a good example is the Pugwash conference at the height of US-Soviet competition, uh, providing uh, what Matthew Evangelista argues in his book is a, a really important channel for conversation, back channel deliberations around nuclear security issues. And I think the my best example for just how our current discourse about AI and AI governance and um, technological competition is, is missing the technical globalism component. I think the best example of this is you, you almost see no discussions in any AI governance, a, any AI politics paper about translation, how translation is a key driver of globalization and, and some of the most important advances in deep learning, machine learning in the past couple of years have come through translation applications and natural language processing, right? So in March, 2018, a group of Microsoft researchers published a landmark article demonstrating that machine translation had achieved human parity in Chinese to English news, tra news translation. And while the result marked an amazing advance in AI, the, the humans behind the process may be even more significant. Uh, educated in countries ranging from Egypt to Poland, this group of 24 researchers collaborated across borders to produce this technological advance, with half based at Microsoft's headquarters in Redmond, US, and the other half from Microsoft's Beijing lab. So in this kind of beautiful way, a translation tool 
that will open the door for more cross-border interactions was itself a product of global scientific and technological cooperation. And you see this already in the business world with supply chains and the globalization efforts of departments within multinational companies increasingly relying on uh, what's called neurofluency, uh, neural machine translation fluency, uh, and, and that's important for them to scale their businesses globally. Um, I think so, and, and that's really been uh, important for my own work, where a lot of my work is about translating Chinese texts and writings on AI, um, and just getting a view of um, what Chinese thinkers and scholars are debating, are what they care about, what they're researching, um, and th and that would be impossible to do at the scale that I can do it and at the pace that I can do it uh, without advances in neural machine translation. So, uh, so I think um, it, it reminds me of what Michael Cronin wrote in his book, Translation and Globalization, uh, which is one of the most complete studies on translation. But, but he writes that our, our narrative imagination, our ability to try to imagine what it is like to be someone else from another language, another culture, another community, or another country, is itself a mere figment of the imagination if we have no way of reading the books, watching the plays, looking at the films produced by others. In other words, if citizenship is seen as no longer exclusively defined by nationality or the nation state, then any active sense of global citizenship must involve translation as a core element. So I want to leave it there um, as I want to leave you with one other quote um, from Adam Gropnik's book in A Thousand Small Sanities, The Moral Adventure of Liberalism. It inspired the, talk, the title of the talk, uh, Romantic Realism. And in this passage, she's speaking about John Stuart Mill and Harriet Taylor Mill, uh, very important thinkers with ideas about utilitarianism and uh, women's rights, women's liberation. And Adam Gropnik, uh, Gropnik describes them as romantic realists. So, so my argument in this talk is not to say that we should only talk about technoglobalist narratives or that technology will make this completely peaceful global village. Um, but it is to say that we can still hold on to that romanticism um, while still being realist about um, the harsh realities of interstate competition. Um, so thanks, and I'm really looking forward to your um, questions and further discussion. Thank you for that talk, Jeffrey. I see we've had a number of questions submitted, so let's kick off with the first one. Jeff, what areas do you think EAs could contribute the most to in this field? Yeah, I think there's so many different areas. Um, one of the one of the key documents I look to is Center for Governance of AI. We have this research agenda um, for governing AI, and especially our focus is on ensuring that um, transformative AI is beneficial for all of humanity. Um, so that ranges from looking at great power competition risks, which is what I focus on, but also things like uh, automation, um, you know, what is the effect of AI on authoritarian resilience uh, versus democratization. Um, and there's a range of issues from um, that you can focus on from a research perspective, or if you're interested in going into policymaking. Uh, a lot of people that I talk to, I guess it depends on what the distribution of talent in the country that you're seeking to work in is, but at least in my context, uh, in the US, a lot of people say that like you make 100x times impact by going into government um, in these areas. So um, yeah, research, nonprofits. Um, I think it's the, the, the thing about AI is, I think it's at least for me, um, and I think for GovAI as well, we take a very like broad metropolis view 
of kind of like the people who can, who can contribute to this community. So um, for me, working on like even things that some people say are like short-term issues, like uh, AI and algorithmic bias at a nonprofit, I think all of those scale up eventually and, and get us to um, thinking more and bridging the short-term and the long-term. So I think there are um, just a huge range of opportunities for people interested in China specifically. Um, I think uh, Brian Xie at, uh, has done a really great guide for 80K hours for China AI policy careers specifically, and I definitely point to that as a really good resource. Related to that question, I guess, what roles do you think individuals such as, you know, IT security professionals and researchers, software engineers, what, what roles can they play in reducing techno-nationalism? Yeah, I think um, there's so much um, opportunity, especially for people with a technical background. Um, I got the chance to do a tutorial for um, an Oxford tutorial, teach one for a student last year who had she had Mandarin language expertise. She was a, like a machine learning undergrad and she was interested in AI governance issues. And that's almost like the, you get the holy trifecta there. Um, I think specifically with the technical background, um, just picking the research topics that you work on, obviously there are incentives in each field, but in cybersecurity, especially, um, we know that accident risks are really important to think about when we think about the intersection of technology and existential risks. I was just reading Scott Sagan's really great book on the limits of safety, where he goes through all the different like nuclear accidents or near accidents that happen in the Cold War competition. Um, and we might see similar risks play out in the cyber realm. Um, and then also in the talk, I think I mentioned uh, just briefly Matthew Evangelistos work where um, scientists and technicians uh, in the nuclear field, at least if we use that as an analogy, in, as an analogy, they were a really important transnational force. So um, people with contacts in other countries, kind of the language of science, um, speaking across borders, um, those types of transnational uh, connections in the form of the Pugwash Conference, which later won the Nobel Peace Prize for its efforts to uh, reduce the risks of a hot war from breaking out. Um, I think you can use that as an inspiration for building transnational contacts with uh, software engineers, cybersecurity professionals in other countries. Another great question that's, that's come up. So what sub-areas of AI and technology do you think differently advance global interests versus narrow national interests? For example, translation versus military or cybersecurity research. Do you think investing more in globally useful technology will reduce the incentives for techno-nationalism? This is a great question. This is a great question because you have to drill down into the sub-domains because um, yeah, because the example I use translations connected to natural language processing, completely different from facial recognition, computer vision, there might not be as direct kind of globalizing forces there. Um, yeah, I think one thing that comes to mind in thinking about it is to look back at the historical example of electricity, maybe. Um, so electricity, uh, actually, in a bunch of different methods um, from like making national grids um, that like kind of like the the power source element of electricity um, that was uh, that did fuel a lot of national competition and that like Britain had to sacrifice their political values to for a decentralized grid um, in favor of more nationalized grid um, there was uh, but in other aspects like in communications um, communications actually that was um, electrical communications electric telegraph um, that actually created a more interconnected world 
Um, but even then there was like state control over, there was competition over state control over cables and like the British controlled like all the cable supply and that allowed them to spy on countries and control the information flow in like war times. Um, so it's a long rambling answer, but just that, that yeah, the, the question is a good one. I don't know exactly if I have a specific prescription, like focus more on natural language processing research. Um, yeah, it's, it, it's, it's definitely one to think about more. Um, if you didn't have a chance to ask a question or if you have any follow-ups though, I'll, I'll be doing an office hours on Sunday. So um, that's on the schedule in the, in the uh, conference thing. So you can just search it up and can continue the conversation. Great. Thanks so much for that, Jeff. And thanks everyone for watching.